Hello, this is Earl Fontanelle, and you're listening to the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. And today we're speaking with Frederico Fiedler of the Federal University of Rio Grande do Sul in Brazil. Frederico has just finished the first ever translation into Portuguese of On the Gods in the World by a certain Salustius. And this puts him in a perfect position to talk to us about this amazing work. So, Frederico, thanks very much for appearing on the Schwepp and bringing your wisdom with you. I'm very glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So, Salustius on the Gods in the World is an l- amazing little text. There's, there's nothing quite like it in antique literature. There's lots of stuff a little bit like it, but there's nothing exactly like it. And it's intimately linked with our story of the Emperor Julian, who is a key figure in the history of Western esotericism. So before we even get to the text, I wonder if you can tell us about the problem of the two Salustiuses, potentially, and the how this relates to Julian. Yeah, you don't have even two sal- Salusti, but you have more than two. Okay. It has, it has been proposed a number of different uh, authors for the treatise. It was first proposed in the in the Suda and in Fortius that Salusius was a cynic philosopher. Okay. Uh, but that was contradictory to his very statements in, in his book because uh, a cynic philosopher like the, Salus- the proposed Salusius would say that it's impossible to philosophize. And Salusius goes to say that uh, it is indeed possible, and his book is meant for the philosophizing middle class of men, uh, one who who can pursue a life of philosophy, but doesn't possess an incurable soul. Right, got it. So um, this was first proposed, Salustius. So the Suda and Photius, what do you think they're kind of, if there is a way to tell, do, do they have a motive for saying this guy's a, a cynic philosopher? Because it just seems absurdly wrong to say that. Yeah, it, it is absolutely wrong. I think it's a matter of uh, a name that got quoted in those books. Is it a case where there was a, there was a known cynic philosopher called Solustius and they said, okay, they, this, this must be the guy who wrote this book by this other guy called yeah. Solustius? They thought it was this guy who wrote the, the treatise, uh, this Solustius, but it's just a name that got uh, in the Suda and in the Bibliotheca of Fortius. Uh, but you won't find any reasonable evidence to attribute the treatise to this Salustius. Got it. So what other Salustii do we have? The other Salustii was proposed was a Stoic philosopher. And he was dismissed uh, for a grammarian named Salustius who wrote Scolia uh, on Sophocles. But all of them were soon dismissed uh, when the works of Tiemont on the history of the Roman emperors was published. And he's no stranger for the reader of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. And and only then it was possible to identify our two usual suspects. Right. That we still uh, we are still debating the identity of Salustius. Like we have then Flavius Salustius mm-hmm. and Saturninius Secundus. And the great debate over who is the author of the treaties, the two Salusti, are these two. Now, we have references to a Salustius in Julian's own works, right? So, Oration 4, the hymn to Helios, it's dedicated to someone called Salustius. And at the end, he says, Salustius. Uh, Oration 8 is a paramuthetikos. Uh, it's a, an oration of consolation to himself, on the departure of his friend Salustius yeah. and the the work The Caesars, a.k.a. the Symposium, a.k.a. the Cronia, it's speaking directly to someone. And this has been thought to be Salustius. So why is there any ambiguity here? I mean, if we know that there was a guy called Salustius with Julian on his campaigns in Gaul, can't we figure out which one it is? People have been theorizing that the Salustius the excellent Salusius yeah. of the Consolation of Julian is Flavius Salusius. And it has been said uh, in the notes of Eunapius, when Eunapius talks about uh, Julian in his uh, epistles, 
that this is the prefect, is Flavius. Right. And the other, Salustius, the character on the, the Caesars, is Saturninus Secundus. So we have ambiguity, like in his own body of work, and Saturninus Secundus is the Salustius with, uh, without the S and only uh, with a T, is Salutius. Mm. But it varies um, in the manuscripts, doesn't it? No one can quite decide. Yeah, it, it varies. But all of this evidence is ambivalent. You can't reach a, a single conclusion because you can read the same text. And it has been done, especially by uh, Rochefort, who published the French translation uh, in, 19, in the 1960s of Salustius. He takes the, the part of Saturninus Secundus. But... Other scholars like uh, Etienne are in favor of Flavius with the same evidence. Right. And everything is in, uh, inconclusive. Like you have uh, verses of Ausonius who talks about Salustius in his book in Gaul, uh, in the region of today, would be called uh, Bordeaux in, Fr in France. But uh, even then you have... You have evidence to say that the, the two could be the, the author of the treatise because the prefect of, the, of Gaul is a Spaniard and he, through Julian, he got the administrative rank of prefect in Gaul. The other, Salusius, is from Gaul, but he got, he got the uh, pre prefecture of the Orient. Right. So uh, it's it's confusing. So if you st if someone says Salustius the prefect, you still don't know yeah. which one they mean, right? And it, and even if you said Salustius from Gaul or from Iberia, it it would still be confusing to talk about this particular Salustius. Okay. So is it safe to say that Julian had at least two people in his life who were very important to him, named Salustius? one of which might have been called Salutius. There's a... Yeah. Right. That does make things confusing. You, you, you could say that. In, it's, it's really confusing. It's, it's not such a common name, too. Now, we should also say that this is not to be confused with the classical period uh, Roman yeah, historian, historian Salust, also known as Salustius, who is a completely different guy. At least we can rule him out. Yeah. So, do you have a theory? Do you have a a suspicion as to which of these Salusti might have been the author of our text. At first, I was under the impression that it was Flavius, because Cumont said that it was Flavius. He went in favor of Flavius, because of in one of the manuscripts, the treatise was accompanied by um, Salustius, and then uh, the letter Phi, and the letter Lambda. And this could mean Flavius, but it could also mean philosopher. But right. So it's it's still inconclusive. But now I'm in favor of Saturninus Secundus. I read an article about uh, numismatic evidence on Salustius. That there was a coin in circulation during the time of Julian. And, and this coin, this particular coin, had the face of a bearded man with name Salustius and saying autor. Uh, on the uh, on the other side, so it has been proposed that this couldn't be the Salustius as a historian, because we can say like uh, Homer and say the poet, but if you say Homer, you you don't need to say Homer poet, you know who Homer is, mm. so you would know that Salustius in Rome is the historian, right. so. This Salusius is an author, is an author too. And he has a beard. And beards were out of fashion in the time of Salusius. Yeah. And in their time in the Roman Empire, aside from Julian and his friend. Yeah. Yeah. He even wrote, Julian even wrote the, the beard hater. And, uh, yeah. you know, attacking, attacking those who were against uh, the philosophic way of life. One of the characteristics of which was wearing a beard like the ancient Greek philosophers rather than being clean-shaven like a Roman. Yeah, and he, he poked fun and when he enters the city and he says, like, uh, I have a hairy chest, I have a hairy face, I don't cut my hair, I don't have a barber. 
and Salusius might as well have a beer too. Yeah. So I think I'm in favor of Saturninus Secundus. It's nice when you can bring in uh, numismatic evidence to these questions. It's a rare yeah. thing, but when it happens, it's great. So we have probably Salustius Saturninus Secundus, companion of Julian, writing this piece on the gods in the world. Tell us about this work. This work is, is, is a treatise made to bury Christian polemic, but it failed bearing Christian polemic. And I, I think this is the very reason that we still have this treatise. It's because it failed. It, it went unnoticed, unlike works of Julian, Porphyry, and other philosophers, who, or, or, or Plotinus, who attacked the Christians. And those books were published. So Salusius is a treatise on philosophical matters and common knowledge. He states from the first, the first chapter that this is meant for educated people. And so he's not trying to convert from, from his, uh, the, way, the way he talks about the precepts of a philosophical life. He's stating common knowledge. So this is like an exposition of Platonism and Neoplatonism and other currents of thought, like Pythagoreanism and, of course, paganism uh, in the form of ritual. And mm. if I can quote the words of Thomas Taylor. Please do. He said that the treatise on the gods in the world, it may be considered as a beautiful epitome of the Platonic philosophy in which the most important dogmas are delivered with such elegant conciseness, perfect accuracy, and strength of argument, that it's difficult to say to which the treatise is most in entitled, our admiration or our praise. So this is a, a small book. It's like a pamphlet of right. common knowledge, common philosophical knowledge. And it has the uh, amazing, the mesmerizing quality that you can expand on every idea that Salusius writes and like you have at most 20 pages of, of his treatise, but you could write a thousand <laughs> with, with the information that he provides. And also you can do the opposite. The concise manner in his structured thought on philosophy and his paganism, his and Julian's, you could also illustrate the whole book like in a single image because everything entails the other thing, the next thing. So you could draw concentric circles and you can have the whole, uh, like the system that Salusius is uh, putting forth in his work in a single illustration. And you could also have a whole book, uh, a big book, if you expand on the topics. Brilliant. It's, it's rare and wonderful when we get to recommend to our listeners to read something that's short and sweet, but this is definitely one of those times. Get yourself Thomas Taylor's um, translation, which is available everywhere online, and just read through the thing. And you're going to get the whole of a system of the gods and humanity and the cosmos from a late antique Platonist source in an hour. But as you say, there's, there's depths that you could excavate from this work. Before we yeah. get into some of those depths, I wonder, could you summarize the, the sort of cosmos that Salustius is laying out? What are the gods? What is the universe? What is our relation to both things as human beings and this sort of thing? So in other words, what are the metaphysics? What are the metaphysical kind of suppositions? And then what are the sort of religious implications? What, what is our role as human beings vis-a-vis -vis the gods? This sort of thing. Well, first things first, the first cause. <laughs> he starts the, his treatise talking about the gods and the first cause. And they happen at the same time. You have the first ineffable cause, and then you have um, the apophatic methodology to talk about the first cause. Not in great detail, because this is not the case of Salusius. He doesn't want to convince you. He wants to... Um, just say that what is there to see. So you have the world, which is the, the, the cause of everything, but it's made 
from the creative forces of the gods. And the gods are always good. They are immutable. And the world, the cosmos, the universe is eternal. So it never changes. And being eternal, it doesn't have like it doesn't have a beginning nor an end. In like Salusius says in the in the first chapters. So Salusius starts talking about the first cause in, in the gods and how the cosmos, the world is eternal. So it doesn't have a beginning nor an end. Because in his words, if it if it has a beginning, it's not eternal. For something to be eternal, uh, it needs to be uncreated. And the gods are responsible for the generative forces of this creation. So it has always been there without ever not being there. Now, this already could be read as specifically anti-Christian position statements, right? Of course, because uh, you, you don't have a creator. Yeah. You, you don't have a, a perishable world. And this is a strong case he makes uh, in in many chapters of his book that the wor world is not susceptible to corruption, and you can destroy. And he even mocks the Christians, saying that those who want to destroy the world, he talks about the Christians like uh, those who um, want uh, not only destroy the world, but those who want the world to be destroyed or be passive of destruction. Right. Yeah. He also makes a strong statement for, and this is a di more difficult philosophical position to, to um, maintain, that the gods are impassable, which is in our, in our technical philosophic vocabulary means they don't change. They don't decide to do stuff, for example. So this could also be seen as, a, as an attack on the, the Christian god who at one point, from a, from a polytheist perspective, at one point just decides to incarnate and become Jesus, for example, because he wanted to. Like the gods don't operate that way, according to this Platonist framework, right? Yeah, human actions are worthless to the gods. There's no salvific nature on this uh, world vision of Salusius. If we're close to have a salvific uh, notion, it's not because of God, it's because of ourselves. Right. And uh, there's a... A good point to make on Salusius about autonomy and autarkeia, self-sufficiency, self-reliance. So we are responsible in Salusius for our own souls and their destiny. So you, uh, although you have common points that you can see uh, being put forth by, by Christians like Origen sometimes, but because they are common knowledge, the worldview of Salusius is uh, pretty much opposite to, Christ, uh, to Christianity. Uh, the, the world is not evil. There's, uh, it's not so much of a dualistic nature. You have the dualistic nature of, of the soul, of the world. You have the like a tension between soul and body mm. and a deep being of different natures. But he states uh, clearly that matter is not evil. Yeah. And, and evils don't really exist as a positive thing, right? Like, yeah, they don't have nature. You can have sort of uh, less no good, nature of evil. but evil doesn't exist as, a, as an actual thing, substance, whatever, quality. Yeah, so uh, Salusius, in the passionlessness of the gods, he always makes a metaphor with the sun uh, in, with many other topics. And he says that to say that divinity is turned from evil is like saying the sun hides from the blind. So the gods are there. The gods are fixed and immutable. It's the job of, of humans. It's the case of having human virtue to ascend to the gods. So it's not so much of a salvific nature, but more of an ascent to the gods. So in other words, it's not the Christian doctrine of, of God reaching down with his grace and lifting us up from our sin. No. It's, no, it's, we it's, it's your up. responsibility. We reach up to the gods. Yeah, it's the opposite. So we can see the Yamblikian approach here, right? We call the gods, if, if the gods are going to come to us, it's because we call them, as it were, 
or we, we sort of prepare our souls for their presence, but they're not actively trying to save us. Yeah, everything we do is for own benefit and then we can partake of the lights and the goodness of the gods i love it now that brings us maybe to the, conveniently to the question of ritual because he does he explains the gods don't need anything from us so why do we do sacrifices he he addresses this problem of ritual which is a problem that is addressed in great detail in um Yamblikus's de mysteries aka response to porphyry where he says no no no, no. like you do sacrifices, you do rituals and stuff like that as though the gods kind of wanted sacrifices and stuff like that, but it's not really the case. What's really the case is that you're sort of preparing lower analogs, like symbola of divine things so that the gods' influence can can manifest in the lower world. Is something like that the model in Seleucius? The model in Seleucius is based on, as everything else, on imitation. Can you so, expand on that? Yeah, he states clearly that the medium of life is life. The true life is the life of the gods, and our life is a kind of life too, but not like the life of the gods. So we do sacrifices in imitation of the irrational life we have within us. And so uh, doing sacrifices, and he makes a, a point of doing proper rituals for each god, for each rite, you need to sacrifice properly. He never says how it's supposed to be sacrificed. So it's not a manual. Yeah. But it, uh, it's an exposition of these, of these higher truths that Salusius uh, is talking about. So being an imitation of the irrational life, when you sacrifice an animal with, which is irrational and you evoke words during the sacrifice, you are animating the words and you are empowering the irrational life with the power of the words. So it's like a, a transmission of soul and, and the idea that these word carries during the sacrifice. Hmm. So this is great stuff <laughs> yeah. from, from part of Seleucius. It is great stuff. It's also um, can be read very much in the light of Yamblichus's theory of asema onomata, like, like meaningless words, which isn't exactly what Seleucius is saying, but Yamblichus is saying, look, the words just have power. You just, yeah. you just say them. It doesn't matter what they mean. You say them and something happens in a ritual context. And Seleucius is, has an, an interesting take on that. Maybe it's something different. Maybe his take is different on it. What do you think? Seleucius is in, in great debt to, to Iamblichus and uh, many other philosophers, but mostly to Iamblichus. He doesn't go into greater detail, I think, right. yeah. on, like I said, how this is supposed to happen, which words are these, and uh, how are you supposed to to go about doing sacrifices? But I think, like structurally, you have the same thing as Iamblichus uh, in the case of sacrifices. Right. Now, something we were talking about before we started recording, which is completely fascinating in Seleucius, which is relevant to this this question of both mimesis and also the power of words, is... In section three, uh, that's section three, four, line nine in Knox edition. But Taylor translates it as, for the world may very properly be called a fable. He's translating the word muthos here. Since bodies and the corporeal possessions which it contains are apparent, but souls and intellects are occult and invisible, end of quote. So that's Taylor's translation. What Salustius is saying is, the world itself, like meaning the phenomenal cosmos, the cosmos that we perceive with our senses, itself can be considered a narrative, a, a muthos, which is really postmodern for someone writing in the fourth century. Yeah, it's where Salusius 
his treatise really shines in, in comparison to many other even bigger works. This is the, the best part, and it's right there at the beginning of the work. The whole world is a myth, and being that myth is the world, so myth is higher truth. Yeah. Myth is true reality for Salus. is a, not so much of a true reality like corporeal reality, like he states that gods are incorporeal, but it's a mode of communicating higher truth. And yeah. And, and in we need know, of interpretation, right? It's, it, it contains higher truths within it, but you have to be able to interpret. So yeah. reading a myth, you have to interpret it, but also living in the world, you have to interpret it. Yeah, and this is entailed by uh, the very first uh, chapter of Solutius, saying that you need to be well-educated. To have virtue, you need to be well-educated, too. Uh, for your soul not to err around in the world, you need to interpret. You need to interpret art you need to do science, and you need to do the proper rights. So uh, the case of interpreting myth is that we know the, the true reality of things through myth. Myth is the mode of communicating higher, non-linear, and ineffable truth. So uh, it's the case that every attempt of communication and transmission of information, like Salusius says, is based on a linear mechanism like uh, it doesn't matter if you are, uh, if I'm talking or if I'm contemplating a, a picture or listening to a song, it's linear. It's linear in the in the sense that it's bound to space and time and it's bound to corporeal reality. So myth is the way of communicating the basically the the nonverbal, the nonverbal, which can't ever be put in our language it, the inexpressible so in this manner forever transmission of, of higher truth through myth myth is communicating like in a cipher like mode and the creation of the world or uh, the emanation of the gods are kept in place through myth they have and that we may, may as well acquire from, from those fables like thomas taylor put it so for those who know how to interpret these stories you know that it's not so much of an uh, event that happened that is bound to our world but it's a happening continuum a myth in the world is an eternal cosmic process this is what is truly entailed when he says that the world is a myth uh, it's eternal it's just a mode of communicating eternity through stories that we can understand and that we can know for sure those who, who can interpret it so he states that why have people made such complicated stories to communicate truth when you could easily tell the truth to everyone and he said that this is useful it's imitation too, because like nature loves to conceal itself. So myth is concealing nature's higher truth. So myth, the stories being complicated to interpret, you prevent like stupid people from mocking uh, the myths and you prevent uh, that good people uh, will turn idle in face of this story, in face of the truth. Right. So myth is the, it's, it's a way to, to carry information and to access information for those who can access it. So this is like one of the coolest passages on the methodology of esotericism that we have from antiquity, right? He's saying the reason myths don't just come out and say the truth is A, because dummies will laugh at it because they don't get it and b for those who truly are fit to interpret the truth they need to be encouraged to do the hermeneutical work if you just hand it to them on a plate they're just going to become idle like you say they're going to be they're going to get lazy they need to do the hermeneutical work so the hermeneutical work is part of the well i guess doing philosophy truly doing philosophy but also arriving at the truth. You have to be engaged with the myths and finding the, the, the hidden meanings. So 
that's an incredible theory of interpretation, right? But it also is an incredible theory of esotericism. And you can see aspects of that approach to myth and to the sort of esoteric presentation of knowledge in the public sphere, such that only the people who are truly able to appreciate it can get at it in people like Plutarch in On Isis and Osiris, in much of the reception of Plato as an esoteric author, where he's he's expressing himself in a measured sort of semi-secret way so that the the idiots are sort of left to one side, scratching their heads, but the true initiates can really get him. All of these ideas, they've like come to crystallization in Salustius. And he's just got yeah. this like beautiful theory of esoteric expression. And it's really interesting that he uses mythos here, it seems to me, because so much of the theory of enigma and esoteric interpretation in Greek intellectual life, in the Stoics, in the Platonists, among others, people like Pausanias, centers around myths, interpreting myths, the problem of interpreting, for example, Homer, who's full of absurd stuff to find the true meaning, which is going to be like theological, right? Um, so he's like taking the, the final step and saying mythos is the key to the whole thing. Like if you want, if you want the truth, you want to go to mythoi. Yeah, that's correct. He says that there were those who, f who founded the myths, sages and, and those who founded the rituals and the rites of the year. So every myth, it's, it's not just a story. It's a, it's a ceremony too. Uh, that you practice during the, the seasons, during the festivals. Right. So for every myth, you have uh, its accompanying uh, rite. You have its accompanying uh, actions for understanding fully any particular myth. And from the theory of Salusius, you can start to categorize the gods in the actions of the gods, like you would assign uh, boxes to, to each one of them. Like when you talk about the, the modes of myth, like the theological and everything. Yeah, so he has five, five modes. The theological, yeah. the physical. So that would, physical. Be, that would be your Stoics who are talking about things like, you know, fire and air and water and giving them God names and stuff like this. The psychic, having to do with the soul. The material having to do with matter, lower universe stuff, right? And the mixed. Yeah, and those are the important myths. Right, and those he specifically associates with teletai, with initiatory yeah. ritual. So I guess we're talking about mystery cults, stuff like yeah. that. Like I was saying about the uh, categorization of myths and how you could uh, use the, I'll call system, uh, the system that Salusius uh, puts forth in his treatise to interpret myth. In the first mode, the theological mode of myth, it, it deals with nothing that's corporeal. It deals with the essence of the very essence of the gods. And he, and he talks about Kronos as an example of, the, of this myth. He associates Kronos with intellect as the, as the noetic. The intellect always turns to itself. So this is the devouring Kronos. This is Kronos eating his children. It's the intellect going forth and turning back to itself. And Salusius talks about movement of the gods and of the planets and of the elements in his treatise. So he talks about intellect being of the orbital movement. So we can, we can see that the intellect turning again into itself it's orbital. So this is a theological mode. The physical mode, he talks about the energies of the gods on the world itself. So Kronos, it's not anymore the noetic, but Kronos is time itself. Kronos is the, the passage of time, in, uh, which is all devouring too. Right. As a psychical or, or the animistic mode, it talks about the soul. And again, he makes the case that the Kronos can be interpreted as a, as a psychical myth when you interpret the God as how soul proceeds forth, but 
soul abides to what generates it. So like intellect revolves back to where it started. Like Thomas Taylor would say uh, in his translation, abides to, the soul abides to its parent. Right. To its generative force. I love how, as with um, Porphyry reading on the Cave of the Nymphs, um, he's taking, so Porphyry says caves can be a symbol of the cosmos, but they're also a very good symbol of the noetic. So he's basically saying the same thing can represent two completely fundamentally different realities. So, and, and um, Kronos, the god here, is being taken in three different ways by Seleucius. And the, the implication is it's up to the philosophically trained um, interpreter to know which meaning is present in a myth. Right to know like when we need to talk about Kronos as time, when we need to talk about Kronos as representing the nature of soul, when we need to talk about Kronos as representing the non-temporal uh, world of the noose. Yeah, um, and the, there's also the material mode, mm. uh, and there's a um, like a polemic here because he. He really diminishes the Egyptians, the, the Egyptians. Yeah, when he, talks he about says they're the stupid. Material myths. Yeah, um, he says like uh, like idolatry. Uh, he would take the the very elements for the gods, and not like a, a relation uh, of uh, signifier and signif uh, and, and signified. He this he. He states that this is correct. This is the case of a wise man to say that uh, wine is linked to Dionysus. But to confuse Dionysus for wine is madness. Yeah. Um, which, is, which is an interesting line to take because usually um, when approaching the Egyptians, the, the, the Platonist position tends to be of course the Egyptians' sages are extremely wise and therefore they would never confuse Dionysus with wine they're obviously speaking of deeper metaphysical principles right um, but yeah. he's saying no some of these guys are dumb they really think Dionysus is wine or I yeah guess. but it's interesting to see that uh, Nock in his commentary he says that this could be the case that Salusi was just trying to rebuke Christianity with all of his force because they were attacking the Egyptians. So he needed to turn away from the Egyptians that were being attacked. Right, okay. So, so he, he just uh, dismissed what the Egyptians are doing in favor of his own, his own culture, his own uh, Hellenismus, like Julian was trying to, to institute that's, that's really interesting because it, it, otherwise it's very hard to see why he would be attacking the Egyptians indeed. But so the, yeah. the idea of Nock would be something like, okay, the, the, the Christians have these very powerful attacks on the Egyptians as idolaters, as they worship physical things. And obviously God is not physical. The Christians agree with, at least to some degree, with Seleucius on this. So I'm also going to attack the Egyptians for that same thing to get them off the table so that the Christians can't mix what we do up with what they say the Egyptians do. So to kind of make us immune from that sort of critique. Is that the, the basic idea? Yeah, that's the idea. And at the end of, of the treaties, he talks more about, you could call it idolatry. He says that the souls that can't recognize the works of gods in the world are being punished for mistakes in a past life. And one of those mistakes that makes the gods unknowable to a person is making a king a god, is mistaking a king for a god. So you have this uh, attitude of Salusius trying to get as far as he can from Christian polemic that's uh, already playing yeah. Uh, their world. Yeah. And yeah, I guess Hellenistic we have to remember world. that he is, 
he's writing this piece. Well, we don't really have a dating for this piece, do we? Some I've, I've read sometime in the 360s. Yeah, it's the most common date, like because uh, you you have more or less a, a date of death of Salustius a few decades later, and you have, like I said earlier in the in the episode, the verses of Ausonius. So we know that there was a copy. No, we don't know that, but it has been theorized. Right. Uh, it, it's possible that we had a copy, a first Latin translation of Salustius around that time. Okay. So it's, if that's so true, then Ausonius is a terminus antiquem for this text. If he is indeed referring to the text, it means it, it existed before Ausonius and we can, we can date Ausonius. So therefore, we can say that the text was around before then. Yeah. So the, the point I wanted to make about dating is that he's writing in a time, even if he's writing in the time when Julian is emperor, even if he's writing in the time when Julian has said, okay, guys, we're going back to Hellenismos programmatically, the new world order is the old world order in, you know, in the, in the late antique rethinking of the old world order. Even if that is the case, you've had decades of really radical Christian expansion, suppression of polytheist cult, destruction of temples, angry mobs killing polytheists in the streets, you name it, persecution, and a yeah. gradual eroding of the old worldview. But gradual, but Many not that oracles. gradual. Yeah, yeah. So that when he's writing this work, he is writing, we think, you know, when we ask the question, how much is this meant as a riposte to Christianity? Because if you look at people like Plotinus and Porphyry writing a hundred years before, they, they, they might stop to kind of have a sideswipe at Christianity, but their whole worldview can't be seen as a rejection of Christianity. Like they're, it's not really on their radar as, as that big a deal. For this guy, it's totally a big deal. Because it's taken yeah, it's over a threat. The yeah, it's a threat. So that being said, I wonder what you think of one interpretation of this work that has been made, which is to call it a pagan catechism. Uh, Polymnia Athanasiadi in her book, Julian and Hellenism, that it is meant as a kind of introduction to the basics of Hellenismos, or as a kind of textual reminder, maybe like a rallying point for those who hold to the old ways, that we can we can all agree on this, and this should be our counter-scripture to these scriptural catechisms that the Christians give to their new converts. What do you think of that idea? Yeah, I like this idea, but I don't think I, I totally agree with it. Not because I think it's wrong, but I think it's just a, a, a way to frame a book that has been kind of hard to describe. E even though we have uh, another summarizing works like uh, Albinus and his introduction to Plato and other works in, the, in late antiquity that uh, summarizes uh, points of philosophy and everything, I think a catechism, it's not so much the, the case of Salusius because, correct me if I'm wrong, but a, a catechism appears to me to be like an instruction for becoming Christian, right? for being converted. And Salusius is not trying to convert, and he's not dealing instructions. I think it's best seen if we make a parallel today with works of uh, maybe popular science. It's a brief way to summarize a lot of difficult and complex and abstruse points of view in, in, in a worldview, in, in just a small document, making metaphors and illustrating uh, how some ideas work with easy words for anyone to understand. Yeah. So um, I, I don't think catechism is, is, a, good, is a good way. Uh, I think mostly because although Julian and Salusius were seeing Christian, uh, Christianity as a, as a threat, I think it's kind of con contradictory to think of paganism as something you convert to. 
Right. I think paganism is something you unconvert to. Right. Yeah. There was never a convert to paganism. Yes. Really. Um, it, it's you. You can't convert nature. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I guess if one wanted to argue that Julian himself converted to polytheism because he was yeah. raised a Christian. And he, he does talk about his, I mean, he talks about it in terms of emerging from a period of darkness into the light of truth. If you want to talk about that as a conversion experience, and if he was indeed thinking about it in those terms, he was probably thinking about it in terms that he got from Christianity, because cer certainly in, in traditional polytheist religions, you don't have this, this motif of conversion. You do have the motif of initiation, whereby people have yes, a, a profound... Yes change in their relationship with the gods and potentially with their relationship with the afterlife and so on through initiation but it's not the same thing as conversion in the christian context yeah it's not uh, i think even the case of julian converting to paganism and seeing the light of uh, of helios the word conversion is more like a a, a, a way to frame this experience like a catechism is a way to frame the, uh, I don't know, like the, the structure or genre of the book, but it's not so much of a catechism, I think. I think you point at something very interesting here, which is that in terms of genre, this book is really hard to pin down, right? Like, yes, it, it, if it's a popular manual of Platonism and Platonizing religion, which I think is, is an accurate way of describing it, or at least partially... It's, a, it's an accurate partial way of describing this book. We've never seen that before, have we? Because even um, Alcinous or Albinus, the formerly known yeah. as the philosopher formerly known as Albinus, now usually called Alcinous, whose whose um, introductory handbook to Platonism we have. That's, I mean, first of all, that's not particularly religious, and secondly, it's it's not that introductory. It's philosophical. It has argumentation. It has. It isn't trying to speak the language of the masses in any in any uh, meaningful way. It's it's trying to be concise and sort of summarize, but it's not trying to popularize. I would say maybe yeah. I'm wrong about and that. No, I, I don't think so. And I think one could make a case of talking about how the the work of Salusius is odd com comparing to to other works because we don't commonly see anyone trying to explain myths and telling those myths again. Like, people knew these myths and those stories. But Salusius tells the story of, of, for, his, for his audience. Uh, like, he's trying to, uh, to say, hey, re remember that myth of Paris and, and the apple? That he gives to, to Aphrodite. Uh, well, this is uh, a mixed, uh, is, is a mixed myth, and the apple represents the soul. He don't just talks about the the soul being guided by sensation. He makes a whole exposition of the myth, and this is, I think, something very unique to Salustius. Mm. So a work unlike any other. I guess. I guess yeah. it's. It's good to discuss the pagan catechism thesis, if only to introduce the question of how the hell are we supposed to locate this work in terms of genre. Maybe works like this existed, other works somewhat like this existed in antiquity, and we just don't have them. But from what we have, as far as I know, this really is unique. You can find lots of parallels in certain ways with other works that exist, but a kind of philosophical and religious pamphlet <laughs> it really is yeah. a kind of a pamphlet isn't it is absolutely fascinating yeah, it truly is there's the myth of Atis too that yeah. is a is a summary of uh, not a summary but it's a, a shorter version of of the one who julian talks about in one of his orations to the mother of the gods and this is uh, amazing stuff too remind our listeners who Atis is Atis is, um, according to Salusius, the representation of, of a demiurge. And he's laying by the river Gallus. 
And the mother of the gods falls in love with Atis and gives him this terry hat. Atis lives with the mother of the gods, but he in turn falls in love with a nymph. And then the mother of the gods, seeing that he fell in love with the nymph, makes him mad and makes him castrate himself and give his genitals to the nymph. Mm. And doing this, he returns to the wedding presence of the mother of the gods. And this is a, a, a very strange tale, <laughs> a very yeah. strange story. It, it's also strange that the priests of Kibele, the mother of the gods, used to chop their own um, genitals off in, yeah. in actuality and were um, viewed with a great deal of annoyance by the Romans among whom they lived. They were these sort of wandering eunuch priests who went around begging. They're satirized in uh, Apuleius's Metamorphoses, among other places. Yeah. So I guess that's one in interesting chapter in the history of religions and the extremes to which people will go for their religion. But we might laugh about it, but obviously these people took it very, very seriously. And this myth was a very, very powerful story for a lot of people. You don't chop your own bits off for anything less, for than, than, anything yeah. less than a yes. powerful story. And, um, yes. and these guys find it significant and worthy of exegesis. Um, it, the, the river Gallus represents the, the, Milky, the Milky Way, Way according to Where the Julian. souls descend to bodies, exactly. which is extremely interesting. Mm. Like they descend to the sublunary regions of the world. Yep. And then they are presided by fortune and by human virtue. Salusius interprets this myth. He talks about all the correspondence, the mother of the gods being the, the force that compels the demiurge's work to stop at some point, to not make generation imperfect. So Atis castrating himself is putting a stop to generation. Atis falling in love with the nymph, it's the impulse to generate. Right. So uh, this is like a harmonizing way to frame this story of Atis. The mother of the gods takes a harmonizing measure to make the world perfect and generation perfect. The starry hat is the demiurgic forces, is the, is the creation force. And this is linked to, to festivals. So during a particular festival, uh, you would cut uh, a tree or a branch of a tree. Um, you would only uh, drink milk for a few days and everything is... Uh, in absolute correspondence with the myth. So uh, you have this uh, verbal story and you have the imitation of those, of those forces and, and workings and inner workings and uh, properties of this god through ritual and through festivals. Yeah, I think, I think what's really interesting in, in Julian and Salustius that we see which is already present in Porphyry, I think, and in, in others, but um, you really see it in these guys, is their attempts to bring in not just elite ritual practices, let's say solitary theurgic ritual or theurgic ritual carried on in a small group of people, which is what we might hypothesize is going on in Iamblichus, but like civic cult, Roman festivals like the Saturnalia, these are all appropriate and philosophically meaningful ways of expressing our devotion to the gods. So like the entire panoply of what we might call popular religious ritual. And in a really eclectic Greco-Roman context. So we've got the story and ritual associated with Attis and the, the, the Great Mother, which is not originally a Roman story, but has been around in Rome, has been adopted by the Romans for hundreds of years at this stage. And of course the Mithraic initiatory cult, which is seen by the Romans as being Persian, even though modern scholars of it think of it as very much as a Roman thing. And all of these teletai and all of these rituals are being incorporated into one huge fusion, whereby it's all founded presumably by wise uh, esoteric sages who 
injected true meanings about the gods into it. So like the entire Roman festal calendar is part of your your philosophic practice. Yeah. Uh, it's way more than a story. It's, it's a, uh, a way of living in a way to see nature in, in your own society. Because the, the basis of your constitution, like Salustius will talk about later in his treatise, is based on this kind of wisdom. I think there's one last thing about gods. The hypercosmic gods... Mm-hmm. In the end, cosmic gods. Right. Because these uh, are the hierarchy of the gods. So hypercosmic gods are the gods that fashions, that, that fashion the, the essences, the noetic, the, the intellectual realm, yep. in, the, in souls. And Salusius categorizes gods in a really interesting way because he explains... Why uh, are there 12 gods? And he says, like, uh, well, it's logical. Uh, We have four categories. And each category has a beginning, a middle, and an end. So we have 12 gods. And and then we have the the Myurgic gods, the gods that cause uh, everything to exist, the fashioners of the world. Uh, which are uh, uh, Zeus, Poseidon, and uh, Hephaestus. We have those who animate it, like uh, Demeter, Hera, and Artemis. Uh, The harmonizers, uh, Apollo, uh, Aphrodite, and Hermes. And we have the guardians, uh, with Hestia, Athena, and Aris. And in this way, we can... We can see how they correspond with by the manner which they are presented to us in statues and images, how they how they fashion or guard or harmonize the world, like Apollo with his lyre. And again, everything in Salusius is a case of imitation. So this particular notion of imitation is very interesting because near the end of the treatise, he talks about how the, the temples imitate the heavens. How sacrifices, uh, like we said earlier, imitate the irrational soul. Prayers imitate the the noetic, the intellect. And uh, if we take Salusius' system that that he's proposing, everything is an imitation of this ineffable power of of this world and of the forces that are animating it. Finally, I think as for ghosts... (laughs) Yeah, let's, let's talk about ghosts. Yeah. Salusius states clearly that uh, ghosts exist and you can see them around tombs, yeah. especially those of people who live, who, who did wrong in, in their lives. So he states that they are disembodied beings and you can see them. And there's actually, uh, there's actually the case of avenging daimones in Salusius' uh, framework of reality. And your soul can can wander around in the world. Your soul can go to hot or cold places and can be punished for as long as it must be punished for these daimones. So we have the case that they are not all good, I think. We have uh, good daimones in, uh, which heal your soul and purification spirits. But there's also these vengeful ones. Mm. To, to quote Taylor, but universally, the rational souls suffer punishment in conjunction with the irrational soul, the partner of its guilt. And through this, that shadowy body derives its substance, which is beheld about sepulchres and especially about the tombs of such as have lived an abandoned life. And then he, that leads straight into his discussion of the transmigration of souls and the relationship between the rational part of the soul and the irrational part, which is very fascinating and has a lot of bearing on the question of salvation understood broadly. Although Salustius is kind of saying, you don't need salvation. You just need to be virtuous. Um, You don't need what the Christians call salvation. Yeah. Well, Federico, thank you very much indeed for your insights into this amazing text from antiquity. I can't emphasize enough to our listeners that they need to go and check this text out for themselves because it's, it's an g- absolute gem, and it's not very long. <laughs> so it well repays the pains you might take to seek it out and read it. But um, you've given 
a huge amount of fascinating insight into what's going on here. So thank you very much for that. Well, thank you. I'm extremely happy to be here. Nice one. Well, stay esoteric. <laughs>